This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 30 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined by another fantastic guest. He is an iOS developer, a YouTuber, and the host of Swift News. It's Sean Allen. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. It's nice to talk to other content creators as well, especially on the topic of sharing. So super pumped for this one. Yeah, I'm also really excited to have you on. We haven't done any of these kind of meta episodes of the show yet, like about content creation and sharing. So I am uh, really excited about it too. And especially since both of us were kind of um, very passionate about sharing things with the community and you've done a lot of great work around this as well. Uh, but we are using kind of very different channels. Uh, I am, you know, primarily doing this podcast and my weekly blog and you are doing YouTube. So I'm going to be really curious to hear kind of your your uh, story about how you got started and all these kind of things. Yeah, it was, it's actually pretty interesting because it I never would have guessed I would have been a YouTuber, you know, even so I started my channel in March of 2017. If you would have asked me in January of 2017, if I was going to be a YouTuber, I, I would have laughed in your face like that. I've, ne <laughs> I've never been the person that has to be in front of the camera. In fact, I've been the opposite. I've been like, stop taking pictures of me, get that camera away from me. So yeah. and it's funny when, you know, friends from home will see a video, they're like, you're like a different person. Like, that's not you at all. So it's definitely not the uh, what I would have expected to be. But uh, so it's, it's always interesting. It's good to like, just try things. You know, that's actually how I'm even a developer in the first place. That's a different story. But, you know, I, I wrote my first line of code in my early 30s and it was just like, oh, let me try this. And, you know, here we are three and a half years later. Yeah, totally. It's uh, the same for me as well. Like I am always experimenting a lot, trying new things. And so many of the projects I create, they just kind of you know, they're happy accidents or they just started as an experiment or something like that, which is really, really cool. So uh, with YouTube in particular, kind of how did you get started with that? Yeah, so it kind of spawned um, just like I got my butt kicked in the round of interviews in, in early 2017. Uh, long story short, I, I thought I was better developer than I was. And then when I went out and did the interviews at, you know, the Facebooks, the, all the major you know companies here in Silicon Valley, really was a rude awakening. And what I discovered during that process was that I, I feel like I win the long game more than the short game. And what I mean by that is if you just look at my resume, give me a phone screen for, you know, 15 minutes of, hey, you know, tell me about yourself and then let's do a coding problem. Like you're not really getting to know me. Um, so I lose that game. But the long game, I feel like I really, really win. Uh, so YouTube was a way for me to be like, all right, let me just put whatever I know out on the internet, people will get to know me, people will, you know, know what I know. And hopefully that is a way for, you know, over time, you know, in two, three years from now to maybe even get hired like sight unseen. Like everybody knows me. They know what I know. They know what I'm about. They know my personality. So that was kind of the idea that sparked it on like why I started. It has grown to much, much more than that, though, uh, getting into the, the sharing and everything. Yeah, that's really, really cool. It's uh, funny also to hear like all the different reasons why people start sharing. You know, it can be for... Uh, you know, reasons like getting uh, more noticed or you want to land some really cool job or just for learning or maybe you just learned a lot from the community and you want to give back to the community or there are so many different reasons to start sharing, really. So it's always really interesting to hear kind of what sparked that uh, that this imagination for you. 
And, and also kind of building on that, it, what started your reason for it might not always end up being the main reason, you know, even shortly after you started. So like I said, getting noticed and putting myself out there was the reason for starting. But once you get out there and hearing all the impact you have on people's lives, like I've had a lot of stories about, hey, I got a job thanks to watching all your videos. You, you know, you changed my life kind of stuff. You start getting those in and then now your priorities start shifting into having an impact and sharing with the community. Whereas when I started it, yeah, it was to get noticed, but that has uh, since shifted. Yeah, it's a really, really cool kind of uh, what kind of impact you can end up having. You know, it's like I could never build these many apps that some of my content has like been used in, either if that's open source projects or if that's, you know, just techniques for my blog and things like that. And just like thinking about, you know, how many uh, different kind of projects and stuff that you might have been part of kind of, you know, by proxy, uh, just, it's really, really motivating to think about these things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. Cool. So, uh, you got your kind of butt kicked, as you said, in all the interviews and you wanted to kind of, uh, to, to build up a little bit of a resume or a little bit of a reputation for yourselves. And, uh, you started your YouTube channel and then later you started this, uh, project called Swift News, which is that every Monday you, uh, have a video that you put out, which is just like a summary of, uh, of like the last week in like a video form, which I think was really, really cool like when that started because there's obviously a, like a lot of newsletters and there's a lot of different ways to, to get this kind of information, but I don't believe anyone has ever tried to do it in a video form and I must say you're doing it really, really well. So uh, how did that kind of get started for you? Yeah, well, well thanks for the, the compliment there. Uh, it basically kind of what you said, I'm sure you do and I do and many developers. I subscribe to, you know, five, six, seven newsletters. My Twitter feed is all iOS developers. So I'm seeing their content. I listen to all sorts of podcasts. So I'm like fully immersed in this world. So I was doing this stuff anyway, just consuming all the content I could. And I kind of had this uh, realization that like, okay, maybe I'm just weird and not everybody has the time to do this, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. So part of the reason for Swift News, well, there was a, a channel strategy involved. Like it's a good thing for a YouTube channel to have like a regular show. Like if you're building an audience, it's a good thing to have, again, just a regular, you know, every Monday type show. So right. I wanted to do that. And then combined with what I just said, it's like, well, I'm already consuming all this content anyway. And I know most people, especially because a lot of my audience is people, they may not be full-time developers yet. Maybe Maybe they're working a full-time job, they're working on a, a career change, and they're just learning Swift on the side. That is what the majority of my audience is, is people just learning. And uh, I know they don't have time to consume all this stuff. So I was like, well, I'm consuming it anyway. You know, why don't I just put it in video form? And kind of like you said, and this is not a knock on the newsletters. I think the newsletters are great, mm -hmm. but it's really just here's one or two sentences about the link. Here's the link. Go check it out. Whereas in video form in Swift News, I get to like dissect the article a little bit, maybe inject some of my opinions and maybe kind of point people out to like the main point and the main takeaways of each piece of content. Whereas, you know, they may not have time to read every single link and then try to filter out that main point themselves. So it's a, I call it curating the curation is <laughs> how I describe Swift News. Nice. So that's that's really great. Yeah. Like you say, like uh, it's you don't necessarily have to say like, you know, newsletters are bad, videos are good. Like the best thing that we can have as a community, I think, is many different formats and many different uh, piece of content that have different, you know, takes and different kind of angles on things. So for example, every time there's like a new podcast coming out about iOS development or something, I don't see that as like competition or something like that. I just see it like there's more value in the community and there's going to be different shows that have a different, uh, you know, format and they have a different take on things, which is just really valuable for everyone. 
Yeah, I mean, I completely agree because everybody learns differently. You know, some people like the videos. Some people are like, I don't have time for this. Give me it in podcast form so I can just listen. You know, everybody yeah. is different in the way they like to consume content. So absolutely agree with having a wide variety of options. I'm, I'm the same way. I believe a rising tide floats all boats when it comes to like, you know, if a new new, new YouTube channel pops up or something like that. I don't, of course, it, it's competition in that they're in my space, but I don't look at it like, oh, I have to crush them. It's like, no, I'll happily like feature them and help them rise up because I just think the pie is so big of people wanting to learn how to code and learn how to write Swift. Oh, and yeah. It's only getting, it's only getting bigger. So, and I think there's in its current form, I don't think there's enough content creators to really satisfy all the desire yet. Um, maybe my tune will change in like three or four years if there's, you know, a million content creators. But <laughs> as, of, as of right now, I don't think there's enough. No, I totally agree with that. There's definitely more demand than any one person can kind of satisfy. So mm -hmm. it's great that there's a lot of us. So uh, apart from content creation, you are also working. You started uh, working as a freelancer, you were working remotely, and now you've kind of uh, started working uh, as a more full-time job. Uh, but tell me a little bit about when you were working as a freelancer, how was that like for you? Like working remotely and working with clients, like how did that work out for you? Yeah, so that also kind of happened by accident. Like, like you mentioned, the happy accidents. That's kind of my whole developer career. It's kind of funny how that works out. <laughs> um, so back to me getting my butt kicked in those job interviews. Those job interviews didn't work out, but I had quit my job to go full-time job interviewing. So uh, as a way to get some income, I started picking up small contracts while I was doing these interviews with no intention of like being a contractor. I just was like, I need to pay my rent <laughs> while I'm interviewing. Right, exactly. So, uh, but as those interviews, you know, started not working out, I started picking up more and more contracts and I was like, well, why don't I just give this a shot? You know, this is this is a thing. People do this work from home and contracts. So so that's how that's how it got started. And uh, I recently just ended my year and a half of a, as a contractor stint. And, and it's because I got tired of it, which is, you know, interesting. Like some people think, oh, work from home, make your own hours. That's amazing. And it is. But uh, <laughs> it's it's easier said than done, especially after like a long time. And, you know, my environment's not the greatest for it. I live in a, a studio apartment in downtown San Francisco and it's basically a giant bedroom. So oh, it's like right. get, going from my bed to my computer is like <laughs> a five foot walk. So it's very hard. You have a five foot commute. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. And it's very hard to kind of get in work mode when you're basically in your bedroom. You yeah, know? So, no time to listen to podcasts on the way to work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, and, and I, don't get me wrong. I know people can say, well, you know, self-discipline, you know, structure. And, and again, that is, Yes, I agree, but it's it's tough to keep up for a year and a half when you're working out of your bedroom and there are things to do. Um, so yeah, so recently I started full time and that was because I just, I wanted more structure, but I, I did enjoy the time as, as freelancer, uh, making my own hours working for myself. Uh, but I do predict my career will go, you know, a stint working for myself and then a stint at a company and then going back and forth uh, because I do like to mix it up. Yeah, and that's very, very common also. It's uh, kind of what it was like for me. I was working as a freelancer just like you before. Uh, and I also kind of felt like I hit some form of limit of what projects I could be working with since I didn't have a ton of experience and I didn't have like big any big like great companies on my resume at that point uh, but then I got my job at Spotify which was a really big kind of game changer for me uh, both in terms of being able to work on like a really cool big product but most importantly like working in a really big company with lots of great developers and just learning so much like I'm pretty much like a different person. Like the day I stepped out of Spotify and, and left that job, I was like a very different person than the day I joined, uh, simply because I learned so incredibly much during those years. And at that point, it made more sense for me to kind of go back and become a freelancer because like you say, there are some really good benefits to it. Like you can make your own hours, you can work in a more free form kind of way, uh, depending on kind of what 
type of client you work with. Uh, but you really need to have like that experience. You need to have that confidence also as a developer to make a lot of hard decisions kind of on your own because a lot of the times the clients, they are kind of expecting you to take like full responsibility for a project. And unless you have like that really good experience and you have like those those things with you, like all those tools and things that you might have learned in a big company, it can be really, really tricky. So yeah, I definitely understand your your motivation to kind of, you know, go back, get a job, and then maybe later you will you will become a freelancer again. Yeah, you, you made me think of a couple things there. So I, a lot of people, again, my audience is people just learning how to code, just wanting to get their first job. And a lot of people want to start freelancer or remote. And I always recommend against that for the reasons you just said is, you're going to be taking on full responsibility for the entire app. And if it's your first job, you might not be ready for that. That being said, I do think I learned the most I've ever learned in my career during my contracting stint. And that is because I was on a new contract and a new project like every two or three months. And there were just a wide, wide variety of them. Whereas when you're working at a company, you're... I don't want to say stuck. That made it sound bad, but you're you're on <laughs> one project for you know two a year and a half, two years, however long you're there. Uh, so you don't get a ton of variety. So contracting is when I learned the most in my career, but I, I don't recommend starting there as your very first job. Right? Yeah, it's like everything. Everything has pros and cons, and I I also usually recommend when people ask me about these things. It's it's always very tricky for me to give good recommendations because it really depends on what kind of person you are and where you live and what kind of options you have available. Uh, but in general, like working in a little bit larger company uh, might be really good just to accumulate some of those skills. And for example, also doing something like studio work. If you work in like a studio or in some kind of um, uh, development shop where you are working on many different projects, uh, that can also be really valuable because then you get that you get that experience from working on many different projects, but in a more kind of controlled and more supportive environment. Yeah, that's actually where I spent most of my time um, contracting. I, I did do some freelance my own contracts, but I would say 70% of my work was done with uh, as a part of a dev shop. So I agree with that as well. And then one thing I want to talk about before we move on, um, before I forget about it, is I think I'm where you're at right before you went to Spotify. Because I'm in the same boat where my whole career has been either contracting or small startups where yes, there's not like a super impressive name on my resume. And uh, I've very specialized in the, you know, building from scratch, you know, file new to launch or MVP or, or whatever. Like I'm really good in that area, but I don't have that experience of like a Spotify where it's a big team, huge app. And, and that is the experience like I'm really, really looking for. And I don't think I'll come back to contracting just like you just said until I get that experience. Um, and I do think that contracting won't be contracting. I think that'll be like full-time YouTube content creator, but I don't want to do that until I have the experience of the big company. Cause I think that's, it's a huge asset. Yeah. It's uh, sounds like a good strategy. You learn so many things in a big company that you can really only learn in such a big environment. For example, like learning how to scale and architect large systems or, you know, handle a large number of users or even things like code review and CI and processes and things like that. And even though you might not take that knowledge that you learn and just directly apply it to all the other projects, it might be like over-engineering, just kind of having those tools in your tool belt and being able to apply them when necessary and kind of being able to see a little bit into the future when it comes to scaling things up is like, it's it's a great experience to have. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so our main topics for this show is going to be about sharing, content creation, teaching new technologies, and mentoring. So uh, I know that a lot of people out there are in a situation where 
you know, you might have been a developer for a while. You might be like a senior developer in your company or a lead developer or something like that. And you are starting to uh, more share things with other developers, whether that is you are, you know, pair programming or doing things together with more junior developers, or you might want to do things like blogging and sharing content online. You know, sharing can take so many different forms. So in this episode, we aim to give kind of as many tips as we can about how to get started with these kind of activities. Uh, but we also have a lot of questions that you guys have sent in, which is really, really awesome. Uh, so we'll take those at the end as well, which are a little bit more geared maybe towards junior developers. So uh, we aim to, like always, kind of give a little bit of a nice mix for both beginners and more seasoned developers as well. So we hope that you're going to enjoy this episode. Uh, but let's get started with, with sharing. So um, first of all, like the biggest question, I guess, is why do we feel that it's important to share content with the community? So you mentioned earlier that sharing for you has been like a little bit of a way to um, to build up a name for yourself and to be able to get like a nicer job. Um, so apart from that, kind of what makes you passionate about sharing your work and sharing knowledge with, with the community? Uh, yeah, there's two main things here. And one is just seeing the impact you can have on the individual. So I've done like individual coaching as well. Um, and just seeing that impact you have on, on the community is great. Uh, but I think the bigger reason and the more meta reason for me is it's constantly moving the goalposts forward. Like if everybody is sharing, uh, like I said before, a rising tide floats all boats. If there's so much information out there that you can learn, um, you know, some basic stuff really, really easily. Now the, the access to become a junior developer is easy to get, right? So now you're just constantly moving the goalposts, whereas now it's not hard to be a junior developer. It's easy. So now you're just kind of shifting, you know, the goal to the right. And the more you do that, the more you share information and the more people learn, it just rises the whole industry uh, to just be more intelligent about this topic. I, I definitely agree with that. It's, uh, it's one of these things where it, I feel like sometimes it's a little bit unique to us as developers and our community. I mean, obviously, I'm sure there's a lot of knowledge sharing going around in other communities as well. But I have a hard time seeing, for example, like lawyers, like gathering around in a lawyer conference or having like a lawyer right. YouTube channel. And like, here's how I convince my my clients, you know, here, here's how I, I convince, you know, the court in this case, <laughs> that would be kind of not very good to do that kind of things. And I feel like that's what makes me so happy about being a developer in many senses is this atmosphere that usually exists where we are able to share so much of our work uh, with others. Yeah. And like I said, I think that just pushes the whole industry forward. Yeah, totally. It definitely does. Uh, for me also, like uh, the reason I got started with so many of these sharing things, it's it's not necessarily that I just like wanted to build a name for myself or something like that. It's, it's kind of the opposite, actually. It's more like <laughs> I uh, kind of got started more setting challenges to myself. Like I had been a developer for a while uh, and I just wanted to do something new, you know, like like basically flex some different muscles. And I had tried blogging before, like this is how I got started with, with my blog. And it had completely failed before. Like my initial <laughs> attempt for blogging, it was like, it didn't go anywhere. I just wrote two posts, like no one ever read them. And yeah, I mean, I didn't really enjoy it as well. So in my second attempt, it was more like, if I want to do this, I need to set myself some goals that will actually like motivate me to do these kind of things. And the the goal I picked for that was that I wanted to try to write a new blog post every single week. 
And that's what I've been doing now for, I think it's 78 weeks or something yeah, like yeah, that. It's, it's up there. Yeah, it's up there. Uh, and I think these kind of goals can also be usually very important to have, like personal goals for yourself and uh, the reason why you want to do something like this. So I have a question for you, John. At what point in your career did you decide to start creating content? Like, for example, I was only like a year and a half into even learning development. Were you later in your career when you decided to start sharing? Or, and how did that, you know, how did you decide to like, okay, now's the time I'm going to start sharing? So my kind of sharing career, if you will, started <laughs> with open source. So I started open sourcing some of the projects that I was using in my apps. And those were like really, really small, just like just one class or something like that. And then they kind of grew up uh, from there. Uh, so that's kind of how I got started. But that wasn't necessarily like creating content. That was more like sharing code. Uh, but the, the content itself, like blogging and podcasting and things, it was really just like last year that that got started for me. And so I was pretty late in my career. Like, uh, you know, I, by now I've been, I guess I've been, technically I've been coding for like 20 years or something because oh, wow. I started coding <laughs> as a kid, but yeah. I've, I've been a professional developer for like a decade or something now. So right, right. it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, I wasn't super early in my career like you. Well, yeah, I wanted to bring that up because I do think it's valuable that I, you don't you don't necessarily have to be later or you can do it at any time, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, whether I, I don't want people to have the opinion like, oh, I just, you know, I'm only six months into my career. I can't start sharing. Sure. You may not be the thought leader here, but you can still share your journey because um, you are six months ahead of somebody else, you know, and you can still help that person. So uh, I just kind of wanted to bring up that point. Like I started a year and a half in my career. You were later. And my point is, it doesn't really matter when you are like you, you can start. Yeah. And that's a really, really good point to make. And it's something I always try to say to people as well. Is like, if you want to start sharing something, there's really nothing that should be stopping you. Like, you shouldn't be constrained by the fact that you've only been a developer for like a year or something because everyone has a unique perspective. And the only thing I think is important to be careful about is kind of how you frame the things you want to share. So if you claim to be an expert on something, even if you're not, of course, you're probably going to get some criticism for that. Right. But if you frame it more like, here is me, I'm, I, just, I was just a developer for one year and I've just started learning this new thing and here's my experience, that can be super valuable for people. Yeah, just uh, to sum that up real succinctly, it's just share your truth. Like, don't try yeah. to front, don't try to fake it, just share your truth, you know? That, yeah. That's very helpful to a lot of people. Yeah, that's a very, very good thing to keep in mind. So what other tips do you have? Like, if people want to start sharing things, like, what are some good things to keep in mind, except for kind of having goals and not being constrained by your experience level? Uh, what other things are good to keep in mind, you think? I would, I would keep your expectations in mind. Uh, like you, I started with a blog before, like a year before my YouTube channel. But the point of the vlog was a, for my own knowledge, because when you have to take something you learn and put it, put it in blog form or teach somebody else, you really learn a lot more yourself. So it was a way to reinforce what I was learning was a blog. And then again, back to like getting noticed was the blog was on my website. So whenever I applied for a job and said, Hey, check out seanallen.co, they could see my blog and they could see, you know, my knowledge. Um, so it was a way to like showcase that. I, I didn't start with like, I'm going to get you know a million readers a month. It was just a way for me to, you know, put my own knowledge down on paper, paper, if you will. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just have it as a repository that somebody can go check out if they want to learn more about me. So uh, I guess back to the expectations thing is like you said, don't, don't think that, oh, I'm going to start this blog and I have to get a ton of readers. Like it can be for your own your, yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, that's another thing that I think is really important to keep in mind is, 
everyone who ever started sharing something, they started out with an audience of zero, right? Right. My blog had zero readers in the beginning. Your YouTube channel had zero viewers. And of course, that makes sense, you know, when you think about it. But I think a lot of the times we might look at someone who like has a big audience or, you know, puts up a lot of content and kind of make the assumption that, or you might think that, that it was always that way, you know? But mm -hmm. it's one thing I really love to do is go back in time. So if I go look at your YouTube channel, for example, you know, to re rewind as far as I can to look at your earliest videos. And that <laughs> it's, always it's is funny. It's funny, right? <laughs> and it, I do that to myself as well. Like just the other day, I, I'm preparing for a new talk now that I'm gonna do this fall. And I just wanted to analyze a little bit my kind of speaking technique. So I went back and looked at my first conference talk that is on YouTube. And it's just like a mess compared to like how right, I do talks right. now. And that's really important, I think, because everyone kind of goes through that journey, like learning how to make content, learning how to, you know, produce better things. And it's really important to keep in mind, I think. Yeah, for sure. It, it is also fun talk, going back to the growth. Like, I think it was in July, early July, I tweeted out that like one year ago, I tweeted out the picture of my subscribers and it was like 500 subscribers like one year ago. And it took me like six months to get those first like 500. And then now I'm at like 25,000. So it's just crazy how slowly. And then once you get bigger numbers, it just like ramps up. So like, like we said, don't start with the audience in mind. Uh, if you do good work, it'll come. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, keep at it. Consistency, you mentioned earlier, like one big thing for you has been like to put out that video every week to keep consistent. And it's the mm -hmm. same thing for me. And again, it started more as a challenge to myself, but in kind of in retrospect, it has been, I think, a really big kind of reason why my website has been successful. Because if you think about it, and again, this was not something that I designed. It's it's just like another happy accident yep. <laughs> uh, that... I write a new blog post every Sunday of the week. And that means that every Monday when people come into work, they have a blog post to read, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And again, like, I didn't think about that. But now when I think about it in retrospect, I'm like, that's great, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, that's, I I, I did the same thing because Swift News comes out every Monday morning. I was a little bit more deliberate. Like I want, I wanted that experience. Like they get into work, all right, let me watch Swift News real quick or, or maybe before work, whatever, um, to like start their week off, like with all the information from the week. Uh, so yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. So another big question that I get a lot from people who want to start sharing things with others is kind of what uh, you should share, like what topics and how do we pick the topics that we share? And I guess for you, like part of your, your work is with Swift News is like curating and going through other content and kind of picking out the things that you want to feature. Uh, but you also do a lot of original content as well. So how do you usually kind of research a topic and how do you pick something that you want to share with others? Yeah, typically it's just through my day-to-day -day work. Uh, like I said, the year and a half prior to just starting this full-time job contracting, I was on many different, you know, a wide variety of projects. So as I'd implement something, I would just, you know, I have a notes uh, thing. Oh, side note. Thanks to you. I, you you're the one that showed me the pinned note. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was good, you right? tweeted about it or something like that. I was like, oh my God. So I got like, you know, my video ideas is a pinned note now in notes. And it's like, anytime I come across something at work, uh, you know, I'll just write it in the note. Like, okay, this is a tutorial. For example, even something little, like I just built the other day a, a time ago label, it, like Twitter, how this was this was tweeted 36 seconds ago or, you know, 15 minutes ago, whatever. Um, so I had to, you know, make that label in my project. And I was like, oh, that'll be a good tutorial. And I just start, I have this ridiculously long list in notes. And then I just kind of go through that every once in a while and surface stuff up to the top um, and then kind of make a video on it. The tricky thing with doing stuff from work, though, 
is yes, that gives me the idea, but I still have to create like a separate project around that idea. Like it'd be beautiful I get, if I could just showcase, you know, my work apps, but obviously I can't do that for work reasons. Um, put that out on the internet. So uh, <laughs> that is the only bad thing is like, it's like, okay, I have this idea. It's like, oh, now I got to create a whole separate project around that idea, which is time consuming. But uh, yeah, but that's how I find my, my uh, topics. Yeah, it is way more time consuming to kind of create sample code for each new post or each new video or something like that. But I also think that that's actually good. Like the end result becomes better because I could take some code from like a project that I've made or something that might not be under NDA and just put it up as a blog post or something like that. But it wouldn't really explain the core problem or the core topic very well because usually what I want to do when I create sample code is I want to remove all the noise, like everything that is not... Mm -hmm you know, related to the topic that I'm discussing, I just want to put, you know, take that away so that you get get this more focused sample code. And, you know, that's why I always, just like you, even though I might be really inspired by a problem that I've solved at work or with a client, um, I always create like a new original kind of project, new sample code for a post. So what you said about, you know, clearing away all the, all the fluff, like I agree hundred percent. And that's why I think my videos uh, are good or why they resonate is because they're very focused. It's very, you know, they're 10 minutes long is what I try to keep it under for my tutorials. Um, and I've seen so many tutorials on the internet that are like 45 to 50 minutes long. And it's just, it's just brutal to, you know, somebody <laughs> sitting in front of a computer for that long. So like you, I try to clear out, you know, all the fluff and make it focused uh, as well. So that's why I think my videos are, are good in that sense. Yeah, it's, uh, it also takes a lot more time to actually do that. Like, it's funny because it takes longer to write something shorter <laughs> or it takes right, right. longer to produce something shorter, right? Because you have to edit it more. You have to cut things out. You have to make those hard decisions like what do I include? What don't I include? What I, what I learned the hard way too with these videos, because I provide the sample, like I'll put in the link in the description, I'll put the Dropbox link to like my actual Xcode project, you know, so people can check it out. What I learned the hard way in my earlier videos is let, let's say the video was focused on, you know, like a how you have buttons in individual table view cells and you use the delegate method to actually like, you know, press those buttons and do stuff on the actual screen. Um, whereas, so my video was focused on that, but when I made my sample project, I didn't really focus on the rest of the code, like creating my dummy data data for like my objects was like hacked together. And what I discovered is when people look at the source code, they look at all the source code, not just the stuff <laughs> you focused right. on. So I got so many questions about, well, why did you build your video object that way? I'm like, I don't know. That's not what the video was about. I just hacked that together. But <laughs> after a couple of those, I was like, okay, I guess if I'm going to provide the whole Xcode project, the whole thing needs to be on point. You know, I can't just have just the focus part. So it's kind of funny that that creates even more work now for the projects, but it's, it, it's well worth it. Like you said, you, when you create that extra sample project that's specifically for that, um, not only do you get rid of the fluff, but I think it's easier for the, it's easier for the viewer to like understand the topic. Yeah, absolutely. And going back a little bit to like the audience thing we discussed earlier and like, you know, having a big audience and these kind of things, these kind of things, when it comes to like the format that you want to use and kind of how long you want to make a video or a podcast episode or a blog post and how you share the sample code, these are things that you're going to learn along the way, right? This is not something where there's like a prescribed formula for and what works for us doesn't necessarily work for someone else. Like everyone has their own kind of preferred format and that's also really important to discover. And I think that's important also to give yourself the time to discover those things. Like if you want to make videos, the best way to learn is make videos videos, you know? Right, so right. instead of chasing that, you know, those 20,000 subscribers from day one, I think it's more important to just have as a, as, a, as a focus and as a goal to like, let me try to perfect my formula. Like, 
reach mm-hmm. out to people for feedback, you know, especially friends and people that you trust and, you know, get that feedback, you know, incorporate it, really be humble and try to really improve all the time. And like we said earlier, you know, then eventually the numbers will probably, you know, come to you, but you really need that, that really, really, you know, focused iteration on the content itself. Yeah, you just said the word that I was going to chime in with here. It's just like software. It's constant iteration and evolution, right? Um, And I think that is also good. It's going to improve you, but it's also going to keep your content a little fresh as well. If you're constantly changing and iterating and evolving and trying new things, uh, you're going to stay more relevant. And uh, again, your audience is going to appreciate that rather than if you just did the same exact thing, you know, for three straight years, you know, it might get a little stale. Yeah, it also would be really boring, I think, at least for me, like I wouldn't want to do the (laughs) exact same thing over and over again. Right. That's why. So I do. I mean, I do a huge wide variety for that reasons. I do vlogs, tutorials, just talking head pieces where I'm just talking about, you know, stuff, Swift news. And a lot of people were like, oh, I want more tutorials. Just just do tutorials. And I'm like, cool, but I would be I wouldn't be a YouTuber. I'd be so bored. This wouldn't be fun for me if that's all I did. You know, so a, a variety does help you stick with it. Going back to that consistency thing, because I think a lot of people start stuff, do it for a couple weeks and then fall off. Uh, so I also think implementing things that will keep you interested is very important as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's very important that what you create is primarily, I think, for yourself, right? You create something that you're proud of, something you enjoy doing, because almost all of the people who create content for the community are doing it, you know, in their spare time as an extra thing, you know, just for fun most of the time. And it's important that you enjoy it. Like, why else would you have a hobby project if it's not a fun hobby, right? So oh, for sure. My my YouTube revenue, I think if I did it on like per hour, it'd probably be like a dollar an hour. <laughs> right. <laughs> how much yeah. I, how, is how much I make on YouTube. So yeah, it's definitely out of passion. It's not for the uh, financial reward, sure. But don't get me wrong. I'm, I don't want to paint a bad picture. Uh, let, me put, let me put a big yet after that because YouTube can scale. Um, I'm just not at scale yet. So uh, hopefully we'll get there someday. Yeah, I hope so too. All right, next up, we want to talk more specifically about teaching new technologies. But before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank our good friends at Bitrise, which is this episode's sponsor. Bitrise is my favorite continuous integration service. It's fast, reliable, easy to use, and you can quickly set it up for any new project for iOS, the Mac, or even Android and React Native. Speaking about supporting the community, Bitrise is really passionate about this as well. And that's why you can use Bitrise for free for up to 200 builds per month, which is really awesome for hobby projects. With Bitrise, you can increase your confidence when it comes to shipping your app or your project, both internally to your testers and when shipping to the App Store. You can have it run your tests, both unit tests and UI tests. You can build your app with different configurations. And you can use tools like SwiftLint, Fastlane, and Danger to automate a lot of repetitive and tedious work. So I know that a lot of people right now, including myself, are busy migrating our apps to iOS 12 and Swift 4.2. And the good news is that Bitrise has supported the Xcode 10 beta all the way since WWDC. And even better, you can set up a separate configuration for your iOS 12 builds so you can keep working in Xcode 9 for your shipping code, but still run all of your tests and distribute betas continuously for your iOS 12 builds as well, which is really, really convenient. And even better is that you can do all of this without ever touching any obscure configuration files or anything like that. You can configure everything you need and perform all kinds of customization in their super nice fluid web UI. 
If you are currently running your own CI service, which requires a lot of maintenance, or you're using some other kind of service, then I think you'll really find that Bitrise will make things so much more convenient and save you a lot of time. So check Bitrise out today at bitrise.io slash swiftbysundell. Please remember to use that link as it'll help support this show and all of the content that I create for the Swift community. Once again, that's bitrise.io slash swiftbysundell to get started with powerful and fast continuous integration for free. Thank you so much to Bitrise for their continued support of my work, which really helps make Swift by Sundell possible. All right, so uh, now we talked uh, mostly about kind of sharing things publicly, like, you know, through YouTube or blogs and things like that. But if we wanted to kind of take it back a little bit and take a look at how can you teach things in a more smaller environment? Like, for example, if you want to teach you know, a new technology to maybe someone who you work with or something like that. What do we think are good things to keep in mind when, you know, teaching someone something new? Yeah. So I like to, I like to put myself in their shoes and where they're coming from. Again, why I think my channel has done well is because I target for people who are, uh, they don't have a computer science background. They haven't been programming since they were a kid like you, you know, they're (laughs) just trying to learn how to code by watching videos. So I make my videos from that lens. So I think when you're teaching something, again, putting yourself in the student's shoes and knowing where they're coming from uh, will help a ton. So you can kind of, you know, format and shape your content to their specific needs. Yeah, absolutely. Empathy is really, really important, I think, when you want to teach something. Like, uh, sometimes I see these blog posts that are like, if you're not using X, you're doing it wrong, you know? Right. Or uh, why your UI code is terrible or something. You know, there, there will be these like very, you know, hostile or passive-aggressive kind of uh, titles. And I know that sometimes people use those because it's like clickbaity or, you know, to attract attention. But I think if you genuinely want to teach someone something rather than kind of write or or make a video to kind of boost your own ego or something, like you genuinely, you're passionate about, you want to to give someone something new to to learn and some new knowledge, I think empathy is so important because you have to do like the really difficult task of being someone who knows everything about the topic and trying to put yourself in the shoes of someone who doesn't know anything about the topic. And like, how can I make this relatable? How can I make this approachable? And one thing that I personally always try to keep in mind is breaking things down, right? Like Mm -hmm. rather than going for like, rather than assuming a lot of knowledge, rather than going for like the big complicated, look at this cool stuff, I'm trying to like gradually get there, like introducing things piece by piece. Yeah, I, you nailed it. Like you said, piece by piece, slowly. It's very easy to just show them the cool, bright, shiny new thing at the end. But like showing them how to get there uh, is huge. I agree 100% on that. Yeah. One other thing I found that helps with my teaching and I think I'm pretty good at is coming up with analogies. Uh, and that is just, especially when I know the person, like if it's a one-on-one and like I know they're into like video games or something like that, breaking down the problem and like putting it in video game terms or whether they're into sports or, or whatever it is, um, I found has been like very, very helpful. Uh, a good example of this is in my classes versus structs video. Uh, I use an analogy that I got a ton of comments on that they're like, oh, wow, that, that really clicked. When I was explaining references versus value types, and I use the analogy of like a spreadsheet. You have your Microsoft Excel spreadsheet or a Google sheet. So like the reference is like if I shared my Google sheet with you, John, and you made some edits, now you're editing the Google sheet and it's going to come, you know, it's you're editing mine as well, so to speak. Uh, whereas reference, or I'm sorry, value type is if I just emailed you a copy of my 
Excel spreadsheet. Now you can do whatever you want with that copy and it's not going to affect my copy. So I, I kind of use that analogy and it was probably better said because that was just off the top of my head from memory. <laughs> That's but really good. You, you get the point. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so many people were like, wow, that I didn't understand this. And now you use that analogy and that like really clicked. So I think if you can find an analogy that will work with most people, or again, if you are working one-on-one and you know exactly what they're into, uh, that has helped my teaching as well. Yeah, that's a really, really good tip. And I love that analogy. It's like, you can always get so far with like metaphors and analogies and things like that. And also makes things a little bit more entertaining, right? Instead of just like explaining the technical terms of like, reference type is passing a memory pointer, blah, 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 you know, it's more fun and interesting if you make those kind of analogies. And, and I also think that it sticks more too. Like yeah. you said, you can, you can tell me about the pointers, but I'm probably going to forget that. But, you know, I think most people that hear that, you know, Excel spreadsheet analogy, they're probably always going to remember that because it's very simple to associate. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that I think is really important when it comes to teaching is structure, you know, having a good structure of what you're trying to teach. And like we mentioned earlier, like not racing to the finish, but rather taking your time and trying to divide things in a good way. So would you make like a video or when you're teaching someone something, uh, how do you usually try to structure things in kind of broad strokes? Um, so when I make my videos and again, we've kind of already touched on this a little bit, but I try to make it as focused as possible on the, whatever the, the topic is. So like you mentioned, just removing all the fluff and just be laser focused on what we're learning. And a lot of times when I'm structuring my videos, that'll mean already creating the project. Like I've seen a lot of tutorials again, back to the table view buttons with the delegate method. Um, a lot of times people are like, okay, let's make the table view and go da, 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 da. Where my project like, all right, we already have our table view. Here's all the, the, you know, some code layout. Let's just focus on what we're learning, which is implementing the delegate method for the uh, table view cell buttons. So again, it's just a lot of my structure is clearing out all the fluff and focusing on what we're learning. Yeah. And then you end up with like a higher level structure as well, right? Where you don't have to make so many different chapters and things in one single video, but you can instead make multiple videos. And that means that if someone wants to revisit like the table view topic, they can watch the table view video, or if they already know how to use the table view, they can skip that and jump directly to the button video, right? So it also enables people to kind of tailor their own learning a little bit when it comes to you know, watching videos. Yeah. And, and that's more of like the meta structure of like the channel content as a whole, like you said, providing, you know, different, you know, the whole table view tutorial versus a more narrow tutorial. Um, so yeah, that is a definitely structure in like the, the content as a whole, not necessarily the one piece of content. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it also relates a little bit to a piece of feedback that I get quite often from readers uh, of my blog. And that's like, you are using so many different ways of writing like a networking code. And I then I usually joke and I say, yeah, my blog could have the subtitle, a hundred different ways to write a data loader. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason it might look like inconsistent when you look at it from kind of a surface level, like why am I using URL such in this way in this post and in, a, in another post I'm using it in a completely different way. And that's usually because, again, because of the focus where I'm not looking to teach you futures and promises in this post, right? That was another Mm -hmm. post. In this Mm -hmm. post, we're looking at, I don't know, testing asynchronous code. So I'm just going to use the vanilla kind of URL session here and not use futures and promises or anything fancy like that because I don't want to distract from what we're actually looking at right now. And then I can put a link like in the bottom and say, you know, if you want to learn a different way of doing this, take a look at the futures and promises post. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's really important to keep in mind again because... As someone, especially if you are just getting started with kind of teaching maybe more junior developers in your company or something, you know, you might be really excited about something. You might be like, 
I really want to tell them about futures and promises, but you have to kind of hold <laughs> you back a little bit and try to focus on one single topic because otherwise you usually end up with a pretty confusing message. Yeah, and that's definitely a skill in and of itself because I get a ton of comments that way too about maybe I'll do a tutorial and I'm like, oh, you should have done it this way or you should have implemented a protocol. And it's like, well, if I implement a protocol, now I got to go down the whole protocol rabbit hole you know exactly. what I mean? and explain all that. So it's like a lot of times when I do stuff, it's the very straightforward way and it might not be... And I struggle with this. So it might not be like the best coding practice way, but at the same time, if I did it the best coding practice way, it would be a 45 minute tutorial. And I always use the term, you know, is this more confusing than helpful? And I think in that case, like it certainly would be if I went down all these different rabbit holes to make the proper implementation, but it might not be the easiest implementation to learn. So that's a struggle I constantly have to balance. All right, so related to kind of teaching things is mentoring. And for me, this is a kind of different thing. Like when you're taking on someone as a mentee or when you are like giving more direct feedback to other people, like when a more one-to-one -one kind of situation. So first off, what I'd like to discuss with you is kind of the value of something like this. Like, uh, why do you think it's good to like have someone to kind of mentor you or why is it good to kind of get feedback from, from other people? I think it's insanely valuable. And I say that having, I didn't have a mentor at my first uh, position. So my first year and a half was at a small startup. It was basically two junior iOS developers, the, the blind leading the blind a little bit. Um, <laughs> and I feel like that stunted my growth for sure. Like if I had a senior developer um, to work with and sit next to every day, I would have grown so much faster. And, and that is because I always explain it as in like the art of programming. Like you, sure, I can know how, how to implement a scroll view or whatever, but teach me the whys behind it or, or why you chose this tool instead of this tool. Because everything, as you know, is situational, right? There's no like one right answer for everything. Usually it's like, okay, this is the right answer in this circumstance, but it's the wrong answer in this circumstance. Again, that's what I call like the art of programming that having a mentor will really teach you that. Yeah, absolutely. It's the kind of like a classic example of you teach someone to fish, right? Instead of giving right. them a fish. And I guess in the developer world, the equivalent would be you teach them a technique instead of giving them a Stack Overflow answer. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is really important, I think. And it's good that you bring that up because um, when you are early in your career, right? When you get started, you are more focused just on solving problems, like solving concrete problems. Like mm -hmm. you just want this table view cell to render correctly, right? <laughs> And right. you don't really care how many hoops you have to jump through or how much code you have to copy from Stack Overflow or GitHub or whatever. Uh, although you shouldn't do that without checking the license, but yeah, that's another topic. <laughs> uh, but you're very focused on just this very practical solving a given problem. But then later you end up with this more, you know, you dive deeper and you want to learn more the why and the, the, the background behind things. Yeah, for sure. You're, you're absolutely right there. So when you give feedback to other people, like when you are in a role of, you know, I'm sure people ask you questions and maybe they ask you for feedback and things like that. So what do you think is usually good to keep in mind when giving feedback to other people? I, I try to be as direct as possible, but, it, and, and let, but they know I'm coming from a good place. And let me kind of talk about that a little bit. So I think a lot of times direct feedback can be misconstrued with being like mean or I don't know, not liking you or something like that. But I also feel like if you have to sugarcoat everything, that's not the best feedback. But if you can give it directly and the person knows you're coming from a good place, I think that's very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's good to establish like a 
form of communication with whoever you're giving feedback to, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. this is where you see a lot of things go wrong on the internet when you don't have this established thing and someone communicates with you or you communicate with someone else and it's all misunderstood, right? With uh, with right. misunderstood like being rude or being too direct and things like that. So establishing that is really important, I think. Yeah, so I, so I think the answer there is is to mold your feedback based on your relationship with that person, right? Like somebody you're super, super close with, you can probably be very, very direct and actually mean, but they know you're not being mean. Um, or somebody you don't know very well, maybe you do have to sugarcoat it a little more. So uh, yeah, maybe adapt it to your relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So I ran a couple of workshops this summer in Portugal, like in the Swift Aveiro conference, which was called Everyone is an API Designer. And what it was about was I split up the workshop into two groups and they both each designed an API and I gave them the task. And then the task was to switch at the midpoint, like in the middle of the, of the workshop, they switched and they gave each other each other's APIs. And then they had to give feedback to each other. So what's interesting is that the first time I ran this workshop, so like in the first session, what happened was that I didn't really give any instructions on how this feedback should be given. So I just said, now it's time to switch APIs with each other and give each other feedback. And what initially happened was that the first thing everyone said was something kind of negative or or something that could be improved. Like, what do you think about this API? Well, it didn't make sense that it didn't have value types, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is important to keep in mind is that even though you don't want to sugarcoat it too much, it's like, so what happened in the in the subsequent sessions was that I told everyone, start by saying something nice. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, give right, each other yeah. feedback, but start by saying something nice. That, that is interesting because I, I think feedback is often... Um, like you said, they immediately jump to the negative. Like, oh, hey, here's my rough draft of this. Can you give me feedback? And they start picking it apart. Right. There's like, I, most people don't default to like, oh, I really liked this part or I liked this part. You're, you're right. They, they always default to the bad stuff first. So that, that's an interesting thing. I never thought about that. Yeah. And of course, you don't want to like uh, be too like, uh, you know, oh, it everything was great. And, you know, I like the, I like the font, you know, <laughs> you don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. don't want to uh, have to do something like that. But I think it's important to uh, set something up like in a nice way, because especially if you're giving someone feedback who you don't know or someone who might not have asked for the feedback, you're just giving them an opinion. Um, if you start by something nice, they're more likely to be more... Uh, they're more likely to receive this feedback rather than like if you start by saying something negative, usually most people will go into like defensive mode. Right. I always usually try to offer a solution or like, like, hey, I didn't like this. Have you thought about this? Or have you tried doing it this way? Or, or what do you think about this? Um, I found that also helps with feedback rather than just saying this is bad. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Asking questions is a really great way to provide feedback. All right, so let's say now that someone is working in a company that doesn't offer like any mentor program or there isn't any structure set up to mentor people. Like, how would you get started with mentoring? Like, would you just walk up to someone and said, hey, do you want to be my mentee? <laughs> you know, uh, how would you get started with something like that? Well, well like, I, like I mentioned earlier, I only have experience in small startups, so I, I don't have the large team uh, experience. However, even at that small startup, we had an intern come in and uh, again, we were just two junior iOS developers, but I, I took them under my wing. Uh, I think it's just because I, I enjoy teaching. So I, I jumped at the opportunity to do that. I know some people might look at that as like a, a hassle or another responsibility they have to do, but I like, I, I enjoyed it. I wanted to do it. Um, so if you have any interns or something like that, I would, I would jump on it. And even if you're junior, I wouldn't let that stop you. Don't think that you have to be uh, super senior to mentor somebody. So even if you're only been there one year and then you got the new guy coming in. Uh, and I also think that benefits the team when junior 
uh, developers mentor other junior developers that are more junior, uh, because not only are you developing the super junior developer, but the junior developer that's mentoring is also being developed as well with his leadership skills and his teaching skills. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it is about removing barriers, right? Like if you're a manager for a team, for example, I think one of the best thing you can do is remove those barriers, like get people to talk to each other, get people to try to share knowledge with each other as much as possible and, you know, exchange knowledge. Right, right. And um, in the community at large mentoring, uh, I started mentoring just people viewership. I put it out there like, hey, I'm doing some individual coaching. I'm taking you know, three students at a time, let me know. And I got like a flood of like interest in that. And uh, so that kind of required an audience. Like if you don't have an audience, it might be a little difficult. Maybe you have some suggestions on how you can do that. But I didn't start uh, mentoring until I actually had an audience. But uh, that has been some of the most rewarding time spent because I offer like three sessions at a time. And so over that time, I get to know the person we learn. And then oftentimes they'll do three more and three more. So there's some people I've coached for like nine different hour long sessions. So you get to learn about them. You get to see their progress. That's the most rewarding thing for me is seeing where they started and then where they ended up. And yeah, it, it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. One uh, piece of advice that I have actually regarding that is if you ever go to a conference or a meetup or something like that, and you meet someone that you have like a really interesting discussion with, and maybe they're, you know, at the same level as you or in the same situation as you, maybe, for example, if you're a freelancer, you're working on your own, you go to a meetup and you meet someone else who's also working on their own, maybe just like trying to establish something with them and say, you know, maybe we can... Uh, you know, exchange iMessage contacts and we can text each other every once in a while with uh, some code questions or, you know, do code reviews for each other or something like that. Like trying to establish like a little network of people that you can talk to and that, you know, you might not have that mentor-mentee relationship, but it's like everybody's kind of mentoring each other in a way. Yeah, perfectly well said. I agree a thousand percent. I have so I know you uh, and Guy do Patreon for Stacktrace. I also have a Patreon for my YouTube channel, and part of the perk of joining that Patreon is you get access. I have a Slack community of just all my Patreon followers. Uh, followers, and there's about a hundred people in there, but I would say only fifteen to twenty are active. But those fifteen to twenty people are communicating with each other, helping each other out. Everybody's posting questions. It's a really, really great community, and we've seen people grow. Like I've had people come to that community that are now like working at Nike. One guy just got hired at Apple, and it's just so rewarding and so awesome to like see people come to this community as junior, just learning, and then over a year, like you know, you see they're working at these crazy companies, and it's just like, like I sit back sometimes and I'm just like, wow, this is this is awesome. Yeah, that is amazing. All right, so what do you say? Should we uh, jump over to our Q&A section and start uh, answering some questions from the audience? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So the first question here comes from Arthur Papayo, and he wants to know, what was the first iOS project that we worked on? So I think this is a really interesting question, kind of go back in time a little bit and and, and reminisce a little bit about the past. <laughs> so uh, what about you, Sean? Like, What was the first project you worked on? Well, first of all, good job on that pronunciation. That is, as a content creator that has to read people's names on like live streams and stuff, I constantly butcher names, but you nailed that one. So I'm curious yeah. how you're going to do with some of these other names though, but we'll yeah, see. Yeah, we're going to level up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so the first project I worked on was, uh, it's called Fit Hero, and this was part of my boot camp. So for those that don't know my background real quick, I did uh, an iOS dev boot camp here in San Francisco and got hired shortly out of that. So just that little backstory. Uh, so it was the final project for that boot camp. It was called Fit Hero, and it was probably one of the favorite apps I've worked on even to this day. Uh, so the premise of it was it was basically gamifying your your step counting for the day. So whether that's Fitbit or your Apple Watch step count, you know, everybody used to be obsessed with getting their 10,000 steps. Um, it was basically gamifying that to where if you imagine like a, a Candy Crush map uh, where there's like, you know, you're going up a map, except it was 
you know, more illustrated. We hired an artist and everything like that. It was pretty cool. And uh, basically each day was a quest. So it would be like get a thousand steps in 45 minutes or, you know, 8,000 steps in 12 hours. And then you would get to bosses and then the bosses would be like super hard, like, you know, get 30,000 steps in 48 hours. So you'd really have to like kill it. So the goal was to inspire people to get out there and get their steps and kind of gamify it. Uh, Really love the idea. It kind of fell off. Well, first of all, we built it on the parse background back when, I'm sorry, back end, back when parse was a thing. Uh And uh, when parse went away, the group kind of decided not to mess with it uh, because we all had gone off our separate ways to our our separate jobs. Uh, So it died due to parse, but uh, I love the idea. Nice. (laughs) All right. So for me, my first iOS project was actually a game. Actually, my first two projects were both games. And the first one was like a quiz game that I made together with my friend. Uh, We made like the backend and the client, and it was only for the Swedish market. So it was like trivia questions in Swedish. And then I uh, got together with two of my best friends and we made this turn-based strategy game for uh, iOS. And this was something that uh, I worked on for quite a long time and eventually released in like 2013. And alongside while I was working on that, this is when I started doing some more client work and things like that. And I was working like on a sales app for Volvo and some of these kind of things. And yeah, then eventually it was Spotify after that. And actually fun fact, uh, this is a good time I think to bring this up a little bit is uh, when I was interviewing at Spotify. I wasn't doing like particularly well in the interviews, <laughs> like because they were very geared towards like solving algorithmic questions and things like that. Yeah, it's never yeah. been my strong suit. So what I did was that during lunch in while I was there, I actually showed them my game that I made, and they were really impressed that I made this game by myself. It had you know really complex things like uh, you know uh, turn uh, logic and uh, uh, pathfinding and kind of these things. And I think you know I I think what happened was that I I basically got the job because. I made that game and I made made it together with my friends. So it's something that's good to keep in mind, I think, is like these hobby projects can be really valuable to show even if you are not nailing, you know, your your job interview. (laughs) And to kind of bring this a little bit full circle back to sharing is if you are writing blog posts and sharing stuff, maybe share the fact that you have this game and people will learn about the game and, you know, opportunities could come from the fact that like, hey, I played your game. I really like it. We need a developer. Are you interested? I mean, I've been offered, I should say offered jobs, but offered like, you know, hey, come interview at this company just based off the YouTube channel. So a lot of unforeseen opportunities happen, you know, when you start sharing your stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of sharing, we have the next question here from Matt Schmidt. And he asks that at the end of the day, when you come home from your job, do you still have the motivation to work on your personal projects, such as building an app by yourself? Or do you only code while at work or for a video or something like that? So what about you, Sean, besides like doing the videos and doing your day job, do you also have some hobby projects that you work on? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) So the answer to the question is I don't. (laughs) No, no, I'll expand on that. But it's not, um, it's not due to like, oh, I'm so tired of coding. I don't want to do it. It's so I, I play basketball four to five days a week. So a lot of times my day looks like go to the day job till, you know, four or five, whatever, go play basketball till like eight. So by the time I get home at like eight, eight 30, I've done a full day's work. And I've played basketball for two to three hours. Like I'm dead. (laughs) So the idea of like sitting down and like coding is pretty rough. So I do all my side projects, coding for videos and stuff. Like I jam pack my weekends uh, with that as well. Or uh, sometimes I'll have a work from home day where I can actually adjust my schedule to, uh, you know, account for that. But it's tough. Uh, I think the point of Matt's question is, you know, like, how do you guys do this? I get to ask that all the time. It's like, you put out so much stuff. Like, where do you find the time? And uh, it's a lot. (laughs) You know, I have to squeeze 
stuff in here and there. And like I said, my weekends are basically like you mentioned, you do your blog post every Sunday. My entire Sunday is dominated by Swift news. Usually I do a live stream Sunday morning and then I built Swift news, edit that. And like my whole Sunday is just content creation. Yeah. Yeah, for me, uh, it comes down a lot to planning, you know, like really planning out, like, when do you want to do some of these things? Because if you're just like coming back home and then you're like, oh, what now? You know, it's so easy to just like look at Twitter or, you know, get get stuck in something like that. And I just want to point out also, it's very important to do that as well, like to relax and to not code all the time as well. Right, right. Uh, But for hobby projects in particular, like besides the content creation part, which I usually, like you, tend to schedule in during my week, right? So Mm -hmm. I have some slots where this is when I'm going to do that, this is when I'm going to do this, because otherwise it wouldn't work, right? Like the amount of content that I think both of us really, you know, create and we work on, it's something you need to plan for, right? You, mm-hmm. it's Otherwise, it just wouldn't work. <laughs> you right, would get right. too stressed out. But for hobby projects, which is a different thing, like hobby projects I work on, I still work on some games with my friends. I work on some developer tools and things just in my spare time. And to motivate me for these things, it's a lot about just creating a little bit of external pressure. So it can either be working with other people, which I really recommend, like working with other people that you can form a little team with and work on the hobby project, and you can kind of motivate each other. Uh, but if I don't have a team for a particular project, I tend to share. Again, like it comes back <laughs> right, to sharing. Right. Uh, I put some pressure on myself by putting it out there and like posting on Twitter or something and saying, here's what I'm working on, what do you think? And that serves both like to give me feedback about the thing I'm working on, but also to kind of put some pressure on myself to actually deliver that thing, right? Right, So it doesn't just fall off. I do that with my videos too. Like you said, social pressure is very valuable. I'll be like, hey, I'm going to do this video this week. And it's like, now I know I have to do that video. Um, And that is also another benefit of Swift News. Like we talked about is staying consistent. It's like, I know people are expecting Swift News every Monday. So it's like, come hell or high water, like I have to do that. Like even if I'm up till 5 a.m. the night before, you know, so the social pressure and, and putting those deadlines on yourself is certainly helpful. Yeah, absolutely. It's just important, I think, to, you know, not use it too much, you know, like, uh, because you obviously don't want to stress yourself out either. Like, again, it comes down to planning and you're making time for things and also realizing your own limits. Like, you can't do everything. It's impossible. So pick your targets. Right. All right. So our next question here comes from Pavlos Nikolao. And Pavlos wants to know, what is the difference for us working from an office and from home? And which one do we prefer? And this is very interesting because you recently went from working from home to working in an office and I just did the opposite. So (laughs) I definitely want to hear uh, more about that from you. So uh, what's the breakdown for you? Yeah, this will be interesting to get, you know, both our insights here. So again, like I said earlier, I just spent a year and a half working from home. So I wanted that office thing. So right now in my life, I'm going to say I prefer to work from an office. I'm more focused. I am there to work. Whereas when I was working from home, it was very easy to just, oh, let me pull up Twitter or let me, oh, Casey Neistat just released a YouTube video. Okay, let me watch that. You know, and now I'm down the YouTube rabbit hole. You know, it's very right. easy to do that when you're working from home. Uh, whereas work, it's, it's I, I call it like segregating my time. It's like, I know during the day, I do my work and I'm done. And then when I get home at night, I can do whatever I want, side projects, YouTube, whatever. Whereas when you're working from home by yourself, you have to manage that all throughout the day. Uh, like I said, and it's very, very easy to get distracted. So right now in my life, I prefer working from an office. If you ask me this in a year and a half, I'm probably going to say I would prefer working from home. <laughs> like, I, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm probably going to bounce back and forth in my career. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of where I'm at, right? So uh, <laughs> if you would have asked me a couple of years ago when I was like yeah, at Spotify and I loved it and 
you know, I was doing some really interesting work, I would have said, yeah, of course, I want to be here. I want to work here. Uh, but in my current situation, I love the flexibility of working from home. And I think it's also important to point out that I have a separate office in my apartment. So mm-hmm. when I got this apartment, I... I was very, very um, careful to select an apartment that would be good for working from home. So I have a separate room where I can work, where I have my uh, desk, my monitor, everything. And this is where I do all my work. And I include like blogging and all that stuff. This is what happens in this room. Uh, This is where I'm recording right now. But then when I step out of this room and I do other things like, you know, hanging out with my girlfriend and, you know, watching TV and and all other things that I do, uh, I'm not at work anymore, right? Like these are clearly separated. And I think for me, at least, that's very important to have that distinction. I I think that's very important for for just about everybody. (laughs) Like, I I wish I had that. Like I said, I'm basically working out of my bedroom. So it's very hard to get out of, you know, relax mode. Um, So, yeah, that's you. And, And I am looking to upgrade apartments soon here in the next year or two. And that is, uh, just like you said, that is a main factor I've said has to happen. I have to have a separate room for YouTube videos, work, office. Like that has to be completely separate. So I think that is huge. Yeah, absolutely. So right now I prefer working from home mostly because of the flexibility, but I think it's important to to pick one that kind of fits your current situation, right? And like we mentioned earlier in the podcast, it's like, there are some things that might seem extremely appealing to working from home and might seem like the grass is greener on the other side, but it's really like everything, lots of pros and cons, and it's important to balance those out against each other. Yep, for sure. All right, so the next question comes from Robert Ramirez, and he's asking a little bit about interviewing um, and how we would evaluate an iOS developer if we had to hire one to work on an app that we built. And I think this is, I love this question. This is a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. So what would make a developer stand out for you, Sean? Like, why would you hire a specific person? Yeah, I might be a little different here. So I'm curious to hear your answer as well when we're done is um, I'm big on the the soft skills, the soft side of stuff. I I truly believe that development and learn like you can be taught that. Uh, However, if you're just not fun to work with, you're just a a mean person or you don't have a good work ethic or you don't have passion for your job, um, that's hard. You can't teach that, you know. Um, So I would much rather take the person that's, you know, off the charts, soft skills, great, passionate you know, shows initiative, work ethic over the, you know, super brilliant developer, but doesn't have those soft skills. Because again, I feel like I can teach the the coding part of things. So that's what I'm looking for. It's actually very similar for me as well. But of course, you need a good mix, right? Like you you can't just hire like your best friend who doesn't know how to code, right? Well, of course. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So And I know that's not what you're saying. So you need need to have that balance. But I definitely agree that a lot of especially big companies, like their hiring process tends to be very, very focused on hard skills, right? Like, can you reverse a binary tree? <laughs> can you write this code without syntax highlighting, without code completion? Right. You yeah. know, these kind of more like very hard tests. And of course, those are valuable too, I think. I mean, given the right circumstance and given the right framing as well, it's they can, they can be valuable as well. But I think it's so important to focus on the soft skills and is this someone that I would like to work with? Because as long as they kind of pass a certain baseline and as long like, like as they know what they're doing in terms of, you know, building apps and writing code and learning about new technologies, uh, being like someone who's fun to work with and also having good skills in terms of learning new technologies and being like very humble and open and willing to learn uh, is so much more important than like knowing the latest framework. 
Right. Agree. And you got to remember, like you're, you're working with this person every day. Like you, these are the people you're going to spend the most time with in your life yeah. right? or th- during this period of your life. Like, yeah, it's got to be good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And especially like the part of this question is if, if we would hire someone to work on an app that we built, right? Like mm-hmm. then you're talking about like my creation, my baby, right? Like, right, right, like yeah. I-, I want someone who is going to be a nice person to take care of my baby, right? Like I, that's very important. Yeah. And I'm kind of, I'm almost posing this as a question. I just thought of it. Um, but like, do you think that's almost sort of like wanting to control it? Maybe hiring somebody that's great soft skills, but you can teach and mold in the hard skills because it is your creation and you can kind of like teach and mold them the way you do things on your project. Uh, I wonder if there's some element of that there, just kind of thinking out loud. Yeah. If it's something that I created myself, I probably have some strong opinions about how it should be done. Right. Like it's mm-hmm. probably something I created out of passion and I created it like for myself or, and maybe it grew into something bigger. Um, but I wouldn't say that I want, and that's also important for me as well as a, as someone who's hiring is like, you don't want to hire like your own mirror reflection, right? You don't sure, want to hire yeah. someone who's exactly the same like you. And like you say, maybe like you're hiring someone who you can mold a little bit, but um, I guess the main motivation if I were to hire someone would also be to act as kind of a counterweight to myself, right? So someone who um, like is humble, is open, willing to learn, but who also will give me feedback and I need to be humble and open and willing to learn, right? Because one thing that I always say when I hire someone into like a client or something and, and uh, they start their first day is that I always tell both them and the client that you have a really big opportunity here because this person comes in with a fresh mind. Like they haven't seen this code base before. They haven't seen this product before. So their feedback is really important because they don't have all these, like they haven't built up all these opinions over so many years. They are a lot, lot more fresh, right? So I think it's important to also take take advantage of that and actually, you know, hear those opinions as well. Yeah, for sure. No, that's, I agree. Like I said, I was just kind of posing the question as it, as it dawned on me, but you, you made some good points about having that that counterbalance. That's super important as well. So how about you? Like, how would you feel like you created something on your own? You know, you probably have a lot of opinions about it. Uh, How would you feel about like someone else coming in and, you know, making changes and things like that? Yeah, that's tough. I don't know. (laughs) I might be a little (laughs) bit more of a a control freak when it comes to my baby. Right. Like, um, but I I, like like you just said, you have to have a counterbalance. So there is some some balance there. But if it was like, say I hired somebody and they just came in stomping their feet like we need to change this we need to change this we need to change this i'd be like whoa 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 whoa. slow down (laughs) there buddy yeah yeah wait a minute so i'm with you on you have to have the counterbalance um but if somebody just came in like dictating even if they were smarter than me like i don't know it would just be like it depends on how they did it right if they came in and, and like presented it like hey you know this is this is great but you know i have experience in this and we should do it this way and this way and this way and here's why and then when he says here's why i'm like yeah you're right let's do it so i guess it would how they presented it would make a really big difference. Yeah, you need like a nice mix between like overlap of opinions and different opinions, right? Because you don't want every day to be a battle, right? You don't want every day to just be constant (laughs) argumentation. Right. Yeah. So maybe not hire your like complete polar opposite, like your nemesis. (laughs) Sure, sure. But I'm definitely somebody that like will listen to logic and reason. Like if you lay out your argument and I'm just like, yeah, that's better. Like I'm not married to my ideas just because I thought of it. All right, that's all the questions that we have time for on this episode. So thank you so much to everyone who sent in questions. Uh, That was really awesome. Uh, But for now, this is the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Sean, for joining me on this episode. It's been so much fun talking to you and it's been great to hear like your insights into content creation and all these things. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a blast. So if people are not yet following Swift News, they're not yet following you on YouTube or Twitter, uh, where should people go? Uh, yeah, it's just youtube.com slash Sean Allen. And then uh, Twitter is at Sean Allen underscore dev. And I'm very active on Twitter. Very, I post three videos a week uh, on YouTube, Swift News every Monday. Uh, so yeah, that's where you can find me. No, yeah, that's really good. Are you on Mastodon yet? No, I think Mastodon's not going to be a thing in three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. I mean, haven't we done this before? Yeah, it's a, <laughs> history repeats itself. Yeah, yeah, so... All right, you can actually find me on Mastodon. I am at John Sundell there, but primarily I'm on Twitter, also at John Sundell, and you can find everything about this show and all the weekly articles I write about Swift at swiftbysundell.com. Once again, thanks so much to Bitrise for sponsoring this episode. You can check them out at bitrise.io slash swiftbysundell. And thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.